This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation to us on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Father Bonaventure, I have been waiting to do this episode for some time, actually. Eternity. Uh, because well, probably not that long, but but it it seemed like it. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is our this is our legacy episode. This is our tribute mm. episode to Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who uh, many people have a great affection for. I believe that he was a very personally holy man from mm-hmm. all the stories I've heard about him. Uh, I've been deeply moved by his theological writings, and you know he was he was the Pope of my coming to age. So he, yeah. He helped me to think, so so I'm very uh, very excited to be chatting about Pope Benedict the Sixteenth with you today. Yeah, he's sometimes seen in second fiddle to JP two, or the, but they're very different. And when I grew up, I wasn't Catholic, but I knew uh, of the phenomenon of JP two Catholics, right? And then Benedict arrived, and there was another wave. And I think it's not as pronounced, uh, but I think it is true that there are people who would describe themselves as B16 Catholics. And that was certainly my, my th- I love JP2, Faustina, Divine Mercy, but my I came into the church under Benedict the Sixteenth, and so I, I just always saw myself as a, a B16 Catholic, as opposed to, say, a JP2 Catholic, partly because it has more theological or intellectual or doctrinal commitment. It was just a different kind of thing. You know, Uh, but he was always very close to me. And in in my conversion process, I actually, as a Protestant, uh, was visiting when I was an Anglican seminarian, was visiting New York, St. Patrick's Cathedral. uh, And they had those little medals uh, of of different people and had Benedict Mm -hmm. XVI medal. And so I was so taken by him for reasons we might go into uh, that I bought one of those medals and wore it with my cross on my uh, on, on my chain as a Protestant seminarian, I had B sixteen uh, as a as a little Catholic medal. Oh my gosh! All the time, I never knew that about yeah. you. Yeah, that is incredible. Yes, it was always close to my heart, literally. Um, yeah, no, it's true because in 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 one sense, it's it, the the comparison mm-hmm. as if you have to choose either John Paul II or Benedict the Sixteenth is a little bit insane. I mean, some days you obviously need a Hendrix Martini, and other days McAllen Twenty Five Year is the only thing that's going to satisfy your needs. So either one of those would be perfectly acceptable gifts to the friars of God's point. Yes. <laughs> so uh, moving on, though, before we get too far into this episode, uh, I wanted to share with listeners this great opportunity. Um, I don't know if uh, they've they've heard about it, and here we're really we're we're speaking especially to priest listeners of the of the show, um, because there's an amazing opportunity to go on retreat with Dr. Scott Hahn and the fabulous staff of the St. Paul Center. Um, so they're working on this tremendous project to renew uh, biblical literacy among Catholic priests to help priests um, uh, continue to uh, work on their preaching and to relax and socialize. So we, we wanted to share a little bit of information about that. So if if you haven't heard about it, the St. Paul Center is a Steubenville-based apostolate founded by Dr. Scott Hahn, um, which helps clergy and laity alike to grow in their knowledge of Scripture. Um, in particular, the St. Paul Center believes that by helping priests come to a greater knowledge and love of the scriptures um, that will be diffused throughout the whole church, right? Um, that's why they host three conferences every year for priests. Um, this serves nearly 600 priests annually, so about 200 priests a conference, a big deal, big conference, um, lots of space for people to attend. And I think there are many priests, I travel all over the country, I think there are many priests who haven't heard about these conferences 
and don't know that every year they change and and they're unaware of how great the content is. One of the presenters is Monsignor Michael Hines, who was my childhood parish priest um, and is just an absolutely fabulous preacher. Uh, Sometimes there's this moniker that we give to priests. We call them priests, priests. We say, oh, that guy's a priest, priest. Mm -hmm. Like he's such a great priest that he can be a priest even to other priests. Mm-hmm. And that that's yeah. Monsignor Heinz. He's one of the one of the presenters there. So uh, to our priest listeners, check out the St. Paul Center. So stpaulcenter.com slash priest. They're holding two conferences uh, coming up here, one in Austin, Texas in April, and one in Wheeling, West Virginia. You know, Father Joseph Anthony can't wait mm-hmm. to go to Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah, he loves West place. Virginia, that guy. Uh, Wheeling, West Virginia in July. So again, those two conferences are in... Um, Austin, Texas in April, and Wheeling, West Virginia in July. And all the information about that registration uh, costs, uh, all of that can be found at stpaulcenter.com slash priests. It's an easy segue on that, I suppose, because Scott Hahn has written a book on on Benedict XVI and uh, his scriptural work. I think it's called uh, call, either Call to Communion or that's Benedict's, I think. It's called like Church and Communion or something. It's about ecclesiology and and Benedict's and, and the scriptural hermeneutics and what Benedict's doing. Um, so, and I, which is at the center of, of Benedict's work legacy is this engagement, deep engagement with scripture amongst other things. So I think I know, I know Scott Hahn and that whole biblical movement, the Catholic kind of biblical literacy movement is really downstream of, of Benedict's renewed call, not that the church was ever against the scripture, but a renewed call to take uh, the fight to Protestants that this is our Bible uh, and that we can interpret this without any problems. And actually, we have not just overriding magisterial interpretation, you could say, but actually look, the best material interpretations of it as well. And Benedict XVI really called for that renewal. And I, I tend to think of Scott Hahn and, and the, the folks out there as following downstream of, of Benedict XVI's call. And I think he would probably explicitly recognize that too. Was called to communion the first work of Pope Benedict's that you read, Father Bob? It was not. I'm just trying to think what the first work of his was. I think it could be two things. One is it could have been Jesus of Nazareth. When I was in, uh, I was reading him in seminary and over in Oxford, and when that book came out and we heard about it, um, I rushed down the day it was released to Black to Black uh, Wells. Oxford is the big bookstore down there, and bought the copy. I still have the copy, the English copy by Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury, I think, is the publisher there, um, and immediately just devoured it um, because it's the most exceptional. It's just the most exceptional book on Jesus. Anyway, ever, if you have not read this book, you ought to. It's just an incredible. Incredible, incredible work. Um, so, but I wonder if the reason why I read that is because I had already known him, or whether that spurred me to read what another thing I read, which was very influential, was a, a collection of his called the Essential Benedict, the Essential Benedict the Sixteenth. I can mm. still see the cover, black cover. Mm-hmm. I read this, basically read mm. this into the church. I read my way into the church with him because it, it was a collection of his of his key writings. Uh, selections from and addresses on scripture, on tradition, on hermeneutics, on philosophy, on on revelation, on dogma, all these kind of things. It was just a, it, a great collection. I recommend it to all my Protestant friends. And I read that, and I just felt that reading Benedict, I was reading uh, someone who who was right, mm-hmm. uh, both biblically, mm-hmm. uh, had a strong sense of the covenant theology works, and mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. I think because of his particular situation. Remember, he was writing in in Lutheran territory, in a sense. I mean, southern Germany, but but dealing with Lutheran scholars all the time. And so doing biblical work and having to explain the church to Protestants, Protestant exegetes and Protestant dogmatic theologians. Uh, He was a man who was engaged with not only the Catholic Church and its rich tradition, 
but also the Protestant uh, challenge and the Protestant scholars of his day and past, and also the secular, I mean, think of Jürgen Habermas um, and, and the secular philosophers as well. I mean, the man was a, a giant, an intellectual giant. Yeah, and so extremely relevant. I was, I was recently reading all of the biographical works uh, about mm-hmm. Pope Benedict. So there were many great interviews he's given over the years. You know, Ignatius Press has published them. They're, they're very fantastic reads about his life and his views on all kinds of things. And the interviewer asks Pope Benedict, who really wrote Jesus of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. And I had always presumed that the Pope had had a research assistant yeah. or that there had been a ghostwriter. I mean, because he's the Pope, right? He's running the Universal mm-hmm. Church. Uh, how much time does he have for writing uh, a a literal masterpiece of Catholic theology that will be read for generations. And it turns out he wrote the whole thing mm-hmm. himself. Yes. He's that kind of Pope. <laughs> I could, I just could not. I mean, as one brilliant philosopher, I know likes to say smart people are smart. Yeah. But when you, but when you discover that it's always astonishing. Super smart people are incredible. Yeah. That's exactly. the second super smart people are super smart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but I, I was deeply moved by that because it shows us not only the depth of of the Pope's scholarly knowledge, but it it means that all of the love for Christ that mm-hmm. comes through in that work was yeah. also his. Yes. So not only the scholarship, but the whole sense of that communion and friendship with Jesus that, that you read in that work really, really belonged to him. Uh, my my first mm-hmm. encounter with Pope Benedict's thinking was his first encyclical letter, yeah. Deus Caritas Est. And um, I've probably told this story before on the podcast, but it, it bears repeating in this context, I think. Um, the campus minister had printed out, just because it's so unlikely and silly, the campus minister at my high school had printed out copies of Deus Caritas Est from the Vatican website, which we all know is the worst website in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. the fact that any anyone found, A, found a thing on it, and yeah. B, printed it yeah. out, yeah. <laughs> tells you that we're, Only barely we're, we're better. really in a tough way. I can't and, believe they can't figure out how PDFs yeah. work. And admittedly, this was just after Al Gore invented the internet, so this stuff wasn't really running on on, on full speed yet. But, um, but uh, I picked up this giant stack of yeah. this printed out encyclical letter from the Vatican website, you know, complete with like the horrible back wallpaper background yes. thing. Um, and I read it all. Yeah. It didn't matter to me how it looked. The fact that it was like stapled sheets of eight yeah. and a half by eleven computer paper. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I I devoured it. Yeah, um, as a, as a high school student, and you know, I was attentive to my faith, but I was mostly in the campus ministry office to avoid class in high school, which any yes. of my friends will tell yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Um, but that in, that encyclical uh, resonated with me and continues to res- resonate with me in a way that was totally unique, and I think speaks to Pope Benedict's genius. I mean that line. You know, being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with a pers- an event, a person that gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. I mean, there's uh, only love alone is credible is is even close <laughs> to the kind of the ability to put in encapsulate. I mean, uh, that for that notion of Christianity, and that's that line gets that's very right off the bat. You hit that, and you think, what a yeah, what a, what a great encyclical, brilliant, and that's an absolute gift. So after your conversion and mm. following, um, you know, this in, this initial taste, uh, whatever it actually was, uh, yeah. of Pope Benedict that you got, um, you've gone deeper, and surely this is part of the reason why you took your religious name. Um, yeah. Well, but, but what other what other works uh, of Pope Benedict's have you come to enjoy? That's true. Well, you know, I actually wrote, because I was so impressed with him. I actually wrote my thesis in mass in, in Oxford on him. Um, so it was an ecclesiology uh, study of the church. Uh, with between Hans Kuhn and Karl Rahner's uh, ecclesiology study of the church and account of the church um, and the Eucharist and uh, Andrew de Lubach and and uh, Benedict XVI's Joseph Ratzinger's account, so I got to read 
basically all, and as far as I could tell, of the things that mattered um, with with uh, Ratzinger. He had his, of course, so his first doctorate, uh, you write your first doctorate on Augustine, the people of God, um, and the church as communion in this way, as, as the people of God, a re-embracing of that notion, uh, which is beautiful. And then his, he had, you have to do a habilitation, a second uh, habilitation shrift, kind of a second um, doctorate, second thesis, and that was on St. Bonaventure in, theolo- in Theology of History. It's funny, of course, I have these two bigs. If anyone watching uh, this can tell, I have these two big books. One is uh, one is this actually smaller book. Um, it's called The Theology of History in St. Bonaventure, and it's it's the English translation of uh, of his his work uh, by Zachary Hayes, and it's two hundred fifty six pages. The German actual one itself, uh, <laughs> this, the actual this is, text. I, I wish everyone could see this. Yeah, this, this is ridiculous. Is uh, eight hundred and eighty nine pages, or not about nine, nine about nine hundred pages. So it's three hundred nine hundred pages. So there's, let's just say, there's lots more in there. Um, but I felt a, a real kindred spirit to to Bonaventure from Benedict because of the similar reasons that uh, I, I felt for Benedict himself. The focus on on the church's great tradition, the theological doctrines, but also the the Spirit's movement in scriptures and the notion of revelation. I think Benedict has this sense of reason and revelation meeting together uh, in, the, in a nice, perfect harmony that emphasizes their uh, the autonomy of reason, yes, but nonetheless the supernaturalizing factor that revelation brings to it in a way that brought out for, for me as a Protestant the primacy of grace and of, of Christ's revelation to the church as opposed to, it can sometimes seem in some Catholic circles that reason and revelation are sort of autonomous, different layers and different aspects of the tradition, but he brought that out as kind of one tradition of Scripture and tradition together, reason and revelation, without running roughshod over either of them, but with the right priority that God speaks first uh, and that we respond to him with our reason to his revelation in this dynamic dance and tension. I was speaking to a scholar last week who's um, working in Vienna, and uh, we we were discussing Pope Benedict's legacy, and mm. he he recounted an anecdote, uh, shared this little story with me that that I thought was really remarkable. It really demonstrates just how much the the current uh, theological landscape in Germany is relying on Pope Benedict. So he said, you walk into any German Catholic bookstore, and you find uh, and and really any bookstore that's carrying. The works of serious works of theology, right? Uh, you can see the entire collection of Hans Kung's works, you know, the whole thing lined up, mm-hmm. and every volume is there available to be purchased. Mm-hmm. And then you look around and you say, like, okay, I gotta find some Ratzinger, find some Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. And the bookstores have a smattering of things, but never, you know, the 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 whole collected works. And it's not, it's not because people aren't interested, to the contrary. It's because you can't get them. Yeah, uh, you you just Fly can't actually, you just can't actually get them uh, because he's made such a such a lasting contribution. So so I wonder if we could fo- we could follow this this question mm-hmm. of legacy and the way that Pope mm-hmm. Benedict um, influenced the academy just a little bit further and say if you had to pick one or two things that you say Pope Benedict did, um, especially for scholars, mm-hmm. um, what would you say? Well, I think on the biblical, scriptural. Theological matter, the notion of uh, a spiritual reading that's grounded in the literal text, so uh, a devotional reading of an understanding of Christ and the scriptures that is also academically rooted. Mm-hmm. So Jesus of Nazareth and, the, and his his work, just in general, his work on scripture, exegesis, is is not a 
I do my scientific exegesis and historical critical stuff over here, and then I do my devotional, spiritual, traditional readings of Catholic stuff. But rather, they mesh together, so they have this nice relationship with one another. It's a, it's a sort of fusion of two horizons in Benedict we have, of, of both historical critical, all the serious German scholarship act, action, receptions, history, and all that, but with also the the fact that this is a lived reality. This is not a, a dead text. So it, that you treat, you're using historical critical methods and other things within the context of a faithful, practicing Catholic faith that produces um, a robust, too, just yeah, rich wealth of spiritual and and philosophical and theological insights um, from these things. Yeah, that's a great point. And the Pope not only modeled how to go mm-hmm. about this, but um, generated an entire conversation for the church about this. Sure. I'm thinking of the synod in, I believe it was 2011, when we had Verbum Domini, the document produced, document. Uh, which, which collects a lot of these ideas and really really presents a kind of thinking for the entire church about how to, how, how to do this, how to... Be, be critical about about the scriptures, which is you know something that we Christians do that um, Muslims would never do with the Quran, for example. So, so it's something distinct about our Christian identity. But then um, how to engage that scholarship, and as you said, as you're saying, to really bring it up into your spiritual life, it's it's a it's a different question. That document from that synod is absolutely that postnotal address is absolutely worth taking. It is, and let's go off that and do the second one is the history aspect, but. Mm. Not, again, pure history that matters, but the history of the saints, sanctified mm-hmm, history. Mm-hmm, because in, mm-hmm. that, in that document, Verbum Domini, he talks about saints as the hermeneutes of the Scripture, the interpreters of Scripture. So when we ask ourselves what the Beatitude about poverty really says, I have to go to a teacher who interprets that for me, and I don't go to just German critical methods or something. Or I go to St. Francis. A saint embodies and incarnates the meaning of that. It has an aesthetic kind of quality to it. And so his care for the saints and the great figures throughout history as not kind of one-off elements or individual atoms bashing around through the history, the cycles of history, but rather as the progressive interpreters of the sacred tradition, the deposit of the faith, is magnificent. He preaches on this on on Wednesdays. He gives those addresses, and if you want to go and find any any of the apostles or any theologian or any church father or something, one of the best places to go to get a little quick read that's magisterial is to go and on and find his address on that particular church father, whether it be Duns Scotus or Bonaventure or Aquinas or whoever. He's, he's, he is excellent. Um, and the people came. They always they, There was a rumor that you came to JP2's, uh, one of the audiences, to see him, but you went to Benedict 16th to hear him. And I think there was something about that. His mm. teaching was so rich. Not, again, anything against JP II, uh, St. John Paul II, but but that there was a different, the teaching office uh, of un, un, in, unveiling and opening up the treasures of the Catholic tradition, both historically and philosophically and theologically. Benedict was just a, a Santa Claus delivering presents to us uh, that we, we have <laughs> yet to fully unpack. Yeah, I think they ca- they call him Father Christmas in Germany. Father right? Christmas, uh, yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, I, I but I I couldn't agree more about the importance of the Wednesday Catechesis, and mm. we actually after Pope Benedict passed away uh, and received his uh, undoubtedly heavenly reward, um, our Sunday visitor re-released the beautiful editions that, oh, nice. that we produced of these of these Wednesday Catechesis to preserve 
people from having to use the Vatican website. So, if you want, yeah. so, so, so there are ways of finding these things, uh, and uh, and they're out there. Um, but we should uh, also talk about the um, his his work as CDF chair. Absolutely. Um, and especially yeah. that for the, the things that matter for, for most people, I suppose, would be like the, the Ratzinger Report. Yes. This was fundamental. Yeah, when he had certainly. a, I mean, an, a, a journalist asked to have an interview with the Cardinal Prefect of the Congregation Doctrine of Faith, now it's the DDF, um, and he said yes. And that book, I still think, has some of the best answers to people's burning questions uh, about Catholicism. That was another book that I was reading when I was thinking, when I was converting, mm. and that just mm-hmm. he answered so mm-hmm. simply and so clearly and so profoundly the questions that I I had about all sorts of Catholic practices and theology and things. And it's it's not a long book, but it's, it's I think it's still essential reading. I don't know I don't know of a book that's that's better as just a pure apologetic. Yeah, it's that's really a fantastic read, and and that though that. Ratzinger report that book continued into the later interviews that I yeah. was referencing uh, earlier in the episode, and uh, you can see Pope Benedict's attention to the basic matters of the faith. I think lived in a beautiful way in how he approached that liturgy, mm, which yeah. was which was transformative for so many of us. Um, really approaching the sacred worship of God with a solemnity that that was extremely, you know, frankly catechetical mm-hmm. and formative, and through. The way that the Holy Father approached um, approached the liturgy, I think we were able to to begin to reclaim as a church an understanding of our worship really as sacred mm-hmm. and uh, as being a different thing. So, so I would uh, I think we would be remiss if we were to go through the episode without mentioning, uh, you know, especially Pope Benedict's contributions to to the liturgy. Yeah, um, not, not only uh, written like the shape of the liturgy, which is a great book for you know all spirit Catholics. Of the liturgy, spirit, of liturgy. spirit of the liturgy. That's right. Spirit of the liturgy. All all Catholics should. If they want to know what's going on in the Mass, um, this is a great book, again, because of not only the biblical insights, but the historical, the theological, the spiritual insights, but liturgical insights. It's What's amazing about Pope Benedict XVI is that he was a master of so many fields, master of, of theological <laughs> disciplines, <laughs> no, truly, master truly. of historical disciplines, master truly, of scriptural disciplines, truly. master of liturgical disciplines, master of, of secular, you know, political discourse, traditions, and communication theory. Uh, he, he just... He was impressive, but the liturgy. One of I think what we will most one of the things we, we most remember right now for him. Who knows how long it will last? Because other things will not surpass it, but actually be joined to it. I think I hope that it'll be made doctor of the church at some point um, for his contribution in all these ways and his distinctiveness of biblical exegesis. But the liturgy stuff. They, yeah, again the the pride of place of the again the tradition, the liturgy of the saints, um, and some of his documents. I mean, Samorum Pontificum was just a, a, a beautiful. Uh, beautiful document. We're gonna not do. Uh, we need not talk much about it. But uh, there is something of a high watermark in in Catholic liturgy at the moment in that in that document from some perspectives by some people. Yeah, and I would I would add to your list of places where Pope Benedict had um, just unbelievable levels of excellence, uh, statecraft, mm-hmm. uh, because he was a master statesman. So after he died, I was interviewing Marianne Glendon, the former. U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See, and as she was reflecting on Pope Benedict XVI's approach to the Petrine ministry, she said his greatest contribution to the world stage was his speeches, mm-hmm. and she pointed in particular mm. to, this, to the address he gave at the Reichstag, uh, returning to Germany, addressing you know so many tumultuous um, aspects of the modern era, the, the, the Great Wars, uh, understanding well Germany's history, uh, pointing to the current um, immigration crisis in the West, um, and she pointed to Pope Benedict as, as a master who was going to help lead us 
in our in our discovery of a, of a of a response as a church to some of these pressing questions. Yeah, and also the, I mean, the Regensburg address was huge. Here's another mm-hmm. aspect from him: is he didn't he just batted hard, like he swung for the fences in each time. So that's a that's a no holds bar against you know <laughs> Islamic uh, obedient potency and all of this the incredible absolute power doctrine. It's the, it's the defense of the reason and the will. Uh, but then also Domine Jesus. I mean the, that that document that said you know from the CDF Jesus is at the center. He's the only savior, um, and we we don't we don't care if this is countercultural or what have you. Those kind of documents. Those are just rich, you know, home run kind of hit things when everyone's saying just maybe bunt. Yeah, you know, Thomas just get us. That was maybe the last s- declaration we had before Fiducius Epigons in the church. So that was it's just a different kind of, and it's not to judge between the two, thing. not to say which one's better, which one's more powerful. It's just to say they're different documents. But but Dominus was fantastic. Um, we need not, yeah. But it, those and th- those are just ep- you know epic making events. I mean, those there's, and as you yeah, the more you talk about them, you think, my gosh, it's just the the legacy of this guy uh, in all levels. To the to the, his students, he'd always gather his his doctoral students together once a year and have kind of sem- seminars and such. Um, so the the educational aspect of it, also the to the to priests, his love of priests and the the gifts he's given us through different letters and different uh, things. Uh, the to the church in terms of these magisterial documents and the protecting the church and the CDF to the world, explaining what it means to be Catholic, really Catholic, and not making you know yeah. Con- I don't know concessions and things, but being robustly Catholic, uh, all of, all of these areas just spectacular. To Protestants reaching out uh, and working with them, to to yeah, to Anglicans and to disaffected people reaching out, working for them. I mean, the Anglican ordinary came under, so the, yeah, massive, massive reach. Uh, yeah. We're just we're just, I think we're just understanding the the time bomb. I think um, what was it George Weigel said about theology of the body that it was a, a time bomb that was dropped on the church that has not yet been fully developed and i think that's just that's true that statement is true about benedict 16th and we're still we hit the, the first wave but then like there'll be these other massive waves it'll be maybe even more powerful undoubtedly it won't be a hundred years you know before we really understand the beginning of his his legacy and everything that he's done yeah. for us well i could hardly offer a better uh, summary i think of of his legacy than than you did in those closing <laughs> remarks so I think that that's a great way for us for us to leave the episode. Um, you know, we mentioned an, a number of things here, so a listener might feel overwhelmed. Mm. Um, if you have one thing that you'd like to recommend for someone to start to begin to appropriate Pope Benedict's legacy in their own life, what would you assign? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, or find the essential Benedict Sixteenth, or things. the Ratzinger Report. Three things. Perfect. Good. Okay, so all of those things. <laughs> And then for me, I'll say the Wednesday Catechesis. I mm. think those, those are a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Holy Women, uh, the Church Fathers, mm-hmm. uh, both available by a certain Huntington Press, uh, known and loved by all of our listeners as OSV. Okay, there we are. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in for this episode of God's Planning. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We love your comments. We read them, and we respond to them, uh, at least internally, if not always publicly. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description. You can also follow links in the description to shop Godsplaining merch and to get information on upcoming Godsplaining events. Thanks so much for tuning in. Know of our prayers for you, and we ask that you would pray for us. God bless. A Dominican and Franciscan and Jesuit walk into a bar. One of them asks the audience to subscribe. That's not a joke. Uh, Any ways you can improve upon it? Just don't tell jokes. Right. This is not a joke. Please subscribe. Cheers.